Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 45, the book of Matthew, chapter 12, the second continuation. Of the several things that Matthew continues to underscore in his gospel, here in chapter 12 we see this growing contrast, this unfriendly polarization, if you would, between Christ and the leaders of the synagogue. And as we read, let's always remember that the temple and the synagogue were completely separate institutions and systems. Up until now, the primary religious leadership Yeshua had been dealing with is synagogue leadership. Only later, as he nears his mock trial and his crucifixion, does the attention turn to the temple leadership, the priests. So by the time of his death, Jesus will have had serious confrontations with the full spectrum of Jewish religious leadership in the Holy Land. Now the primary players and leaders of the synagogue were the Pharisees and the scribes. And now since Pharisee was, in 21st century terms, the name of a sort of religious social movement, then we also need to understand that scribe was a title. It represented an office, a position of authority within the synagogue. So Pharisee did not. Now, while not a precise illustration, we could say that the comparison between Pharisee and scribe is similar to how in the USA, Democrats and Republicans are the names of political social movements, but president is the name of an office of authority. In addition, a president also belongs to one or the other of these two political social movements. So just as every American president is also either a Democrat or a Republican, so was every scribe, so far as we know, a Pharisee. Now, I also want to point out that not all Pharisees were the same. Josephus claims that there were seven identifiable segments of Pharisees that each held slightly different doctrines. And they ranged from kind and merciful right up to rigid, not right, mean. I tell you this because when Jesus speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's speaking mostly towards one end of the spectrum. And in no way is he condemning the synagogue as an institution, nor is he lumping all scribes and Pharisees together, just as today in every part of the world. We inherently understand, without always saying it, that in every political, social movement, in every religion and branch of it, that in, there, there is the extreme, there's the mainstream, and there's moderates, and there's variations in between. So it was in Christ's day with the Pharisees. Conversation concerning them, however, 
necessarily speaks in generalities, unless a specific segment of them is the subject. So let's not unfairly paint all scribes and Pharisees with that same broad brush. Just because Jesus didn't agree with all of their theology and actions doesn't mean that he saw them all as, as bad people. But some of them he most definitely did. Clearly, that is primarily those whom he confronts and he denounces and he calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, despite which of the seven segments of Pharisees a scribe might belong to, there was at least one thing held in common among them all, a devotion to Jewish law, to tradition, that often outweighed the, the teachings and principles of the biblical Torah. The divisions among the Pharisees had to do with who would be in control of establishing and overseeing Jewish law. So before we move on, I want to leave you with this thought about Bible characters and, and modern people as well. You know, one person can be kind and, and deceived. Another person can be without mercy and deceived. A person can be tolerant and believe wrong theology, and they can be unbending and believe in wrong theology. Especially when the source of their beliefs is more customs and tradition than God's word. This applies to Judaism and to Christianity, ancient and modern. So let's reread now a short segment of Matthew chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start reading at verse 22. Matthew chapter 12, start reading at verse 22. Then some people brought him a man controlled by demons who was blind and mute. And so Yeshua healed him so that he could both speak and see. The crowds were astounded and they asked, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? But when the Pharisees heard of it, they said, oh, it's only Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, that this man drives out demons. However, knowing what they were thinking, Yeshua said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not survive. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. So how can his kingdom survive? Besides, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God has come upon you. The four verses that come prior to verse 22 are of paramount importance to our faith. So we examine them rather thoroughly in the previous lesson. They are taken from the book of Isaiah. And Matthew identifies Yeshua of 
Nazareth as God's chosen servant that Isaiah also identifies as the suffering servant. In these verses, it is also announced that God's spirit will be placed upon this servant and that he is not being sent to condemn, but rather to bring justice to Israel and even beyond to include individual Gentiles and the many nations of the Gentiles. Such a pronouncement would have been an escalation in Yeshua's battle to restore and reform Israel's theology, especially to the more extreme Pharisees and scribes. Now, it made him the fulfillment. It made Yeshua the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant prophecies. Now, we got to understand how controversial and radical that this would have been seen by most of the first century Jews that heard it. And then as the news spread, Jesus was no longer an unknown. His position as a miracle healer made him famous far and wide in the Holy Land. And yet it is not at all clear that Christ actually uttered those words from Isaiah, nor did any of his followers. In fact, Matthew does not say that he did or that they did. Rather, it's Matthew editorializing what Yeshua's many miracles and his dazzling and authoritative teaching meant. Verses 18 through 21 represent then Matthew's own conclusion that Yeshua was the fulfillment of Isaiah 4, uh, rather 42, 1 through 4. Now, if we're to trust Matthew's gospel as inspired, then we're also compelled to trust that Matthew's conclusion and connection between Isaiah's prophecies and Christ as God's servant is correct. At the same time, intellectual honesty requires that we must not put those words in Christ's mouth as his own declaration about himself because Matthew makes no such claim. And we find this statement from Isaiah 42 in none of the other gospel accounts. So we must not connect then what comes next in verse 22 with the previous four, four verses. Verse 22 begins a long and a separate story about the reaction of some Pharisees who witnessed Yeshua exercise a demon from a man. Now this man was brought to Yeshua for healing by some locals. He was deaf and mute as a consequence of this demon possession. Now there was nothing particularly profound or, or different from the countless other exorcisms Yeshua had performed. But the Pharisees had decided against Yeshua. So everything he did, they spun in a negative way. The Pharisees saw themselves as the rightful controllers of the doctrines of the Hebrew faith and of Jewish law. So they saw Yeshua as a threat to their authority. 
The crowd, of course, had an entirely different reaction. They were astounded. They were highly impressed by this exorcism and consequent removal of this man's disabilities. So they raised the question, could this be the son of David? Now, what do they mean by this thought? And we discussed this phrase before, but I'm just going to remind you that the most likely meaning to these first century Jews of son of David is to be taken literally. The son of David in Jewish society referred to Solomon. David's biological firstborn. Solomon was, among other things, according to Jewish tradition, a miracle healer par excellence. So if a person appeared who was the son of David, it meant that this person was either an appearance of Solomon in another form or, more likely, that the spirit of Solomon was present within that person. It was really not much different than the earlier statement of Yeshua that John the Baptist was Elijah. He meant that in a similar sense. The bottom line is the crowd wondered out loud if Yeshua carried the spirit of the son of David, the spirit of Solomon, within him. And it was this quality that gave his miracles kind of a cut above those of the other Sadakim, the Jewish holy men, that had come and gone. Now, no doubt it was the reaction of the adoring crowd that caused the Pharisees to discount Christ's actions and to claim them as evil in their source. The Pharisees' retort reminds us of virtually the same argument they used against him in Matthew chapter 9 when they said that Yeshua's healing power came from Baal-zebul, the lord of the house. This had become an informal title for for Satan. The crowd is told by the Pharisees that such an exorcism could only happen if it was Satan himself, the author of evil, that made it happen. But Yeshua quickly exposes the absurdity of their logic. And he begins by saying something that was not meant as an instruction or a law, but rather more as a proverb. And it was, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not survive. See, it's interesting that Matthew begins this record of Christ's proverbial statement by saying that Yeshua knowing what they were thinking. See, the Gospel of Mark in uh, 2.28, it records the same incident as Jesus saying, why do you reason these things in your heart? See, the Greek word for heart is cardia. So the translation is correct. Yet, as this statement clearly illustrates, it was believed in that era that the heart organ was where thought and reasoning took place. They had no idea of the function of the brain. Matthew didn't bother to include the word heart because it was taken for granted at that time that thinking took place in the heart. So we must not interpret the term heart 
through modern Western eyes as being mostly about emotion or deep feelings of sincerity as it has evolved to mean, especially in English-speaking cultures. If Jesus was standing here in the 21st century and speaking to us in English, he simply would have said, why do you think these things? And of course, we would take for granted that thinking is just a function of the brain and the mind. So Yeshua is not questioning the Pharisees' emotions or their sincerity, but rather he's questioning their flawed reasoning. Yet I don't think for a second that the Pharisees honestly believed what they were claiming about Jesus before the crowd. Rather, just as happens among politicians, they were merely taking a position in order to discredit an opponent. So I also don't think Christ's response was meant as much as a point of correction for the Pharisees so that they might actually learn from it as it was a way to kind of neutralize their illogical remarks so that the crowds of ordinary folks might learn and not be deceived by the Pharisees. So now that Yeshua has made his proverbial statement, he makes a direct application. And since the proverb is true in nearly every imaginable circumstance, it follows that it cannot be true that Satan can or would drive out Satan from a person, thus making him divided against himself. Because if he did such a thing, Satan's kingdom wouldn't survive. Now notice how Yeshua calls Satan's sphere of authority a kingdom. Now it's important for us to notice that because the kingdom of heaven has recently arrived, the kingdom of Satan has risen in opposition to it. Yes, Satan has his own kingdom. And right now, that kingdom extends over the length and the breadth of planet Earth and into the reaches of hell. So, the kingdom of heaven, think about this for a moment. The kingdom of heaven was birthed within Satan's kingdom. Satan wasn't going to stand still for it. Thus, the world is in for a long-term battle royale. There's not going to be any compromise. There's not going to be any middle ground. Either God's kingdom wins out and Satan's is destroyed in total, or it's the other way around. People of faith who read their Bibles already know the outcome. Even though I think we kind of look around us today and can't help but wonder. This is why Yeshua tells us later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 24, 13, but whoever holds out till the end will be delivered. Again in Revelation, Revelation 2.10, we read, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison. That's in order to put you to the test. And you will face an ordeal for 10 days. 
that will remain faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your crown. Thus Christ's instructions to his followers, to us, is very simple. Hang in there. Trust him. No matter all the catastrophe and the evil and the chaos that seems to envelop this world. For one reason, this is not the sign of the end. Make no mistake, we are in for an all-out war to the bitter end. And we are to be heaven's warriors on earth. We can't sub this one out, folks. We can't kick this can down the road. We're going to have our glorious victories. We're also going to have demoralizing defeats. That's the way of all wars. But in the end, even what seems like obvious defeat, God will use for ultimate victory. You know why? The game's fixed. The outcome's already predetermined. When the final buzzer sounds, we win. Because God wins. Now as believers, if we have the attitude that Yeshua expects us to have, then there is only victory for us. Even though that may not be our personal experience on earth at the present. This was his attitude, even in his final hours as he was headed for the cross. It has to be ours as well. Now, Yeshua in verse 27 turns the tables on the Pharisees. He says, using impeccable logic, well, if he is driving out demons by means of Satan's power, then by what means do they drive out demons? Wouldn't logic dictate that it has to be the same for the Pharisees? I mean, the same actions resulting in the same effects must have the same cause. And it cannot be that good comes from an evil source. Notice that Jesus more or less confirms that these Pharisees also have conducted successful exorcisms. So to apply Yeshua's logic in reverse, if the Pharisees claim that it is the Spirit of God that gives them the power to remove demons from people, then it can only be that, that, that the source of Christ's power is also God. Now a little puzzling, I think, is what Christ means at the end of verse 27. When he says, so they shall be your judges. Now since all versions and translations render the Greek essentially the same, it seems that to make sense of this statement, it works better to take the concept of judges in the context of judgment. That is, at the end of days, when the great judgment happens, then those who have been released by Jesus from the power of demons and presumably saved, 
will be the judges against the Pharisees who claimed that it was done by the power of Satan. I mean, it's hard to know whether this is meant literally or rhetorically. Nonetheless, the primary point is clear. Obviously, the claim of the Pharisees against Yeshua is not only false, it's absurd on its face, and it reveals a very dark agenda in them. Verse 28 makes another startling claim. Yeshua says that if he is able to drive out demons from persons, then this is proof that the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, I cannot say what percentage it is, but it seems to be the majority of Bible commentators that have serious doubts about whether these words actually are from Yeshua, from Jesus, or not. The reason is that he's already admitted that the Pharisees have successfully accomplished exorcisms. But apparently that is not necessarily a sign that the kingdom of God has come. See, we must notice that it's not a general statement about exorcisms, but rather Jesus is saying when he drives out demons by the Spirit of God, it means the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's about a specific person doing the exercising. This is but one of a few attributes that the people are to notice about him. Thus the result is supposed to be that when people see all these things that he does by the power of God the Father, well then the logical response from them ought to be, so who is this guy? I want you to please take notice. Jesus is yet to say, I do these things because I'm your Messiah. Yeshua concludes his debate with the Pharisees by adding in verse 29, or again, how can someone break into a strong man's house and make off with his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? After that, he can ransack his house. See, clearly, Yeshua makes himself as the one who breaks into the strong man's house. And that's Satan's kingdom. Binds him, that is, he thwarts his power, and then he begins to ransack it. It is not that later on at another time will Yeshua begin his attack on Satan. It is that upon his coming and the kingdom of heaven with him, the attack's already begun. So the exorcisms that Christ performs are part of the ransacking process because Satan possessing people, using his horde of demons as his minions, is one of his greatest weapons against God's kingdom. Christ demonstrates he has power over that. He is stronger than this satanic strongman. That is, the Father's power and will are channeled through Yeshua as God's agent in order to defeat Satan. Verse 30 says, Those who are not with me are against me, and those who do not gather with me are scattering. You know, in reality, this is just another way of saying something we heard much earlier in Matthew. Matthew 
chapter 6, verse 24. No one can be a slave to two masters. For he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Now, although this statement, I think, is self-explanatory, it is one of those principles that we hear so often as believers that we can become kind of personally immune to it, if not oblivious, as it expresses one of the most basic expectations God has placed on every believer. Whether that believer has become so but a day earlier or has been in the fold for decades. Our life with Jesus and his Father can never be one of neutrality. Even though countless believers unwittingly try for it. We try to find favor with God while maintaining favor with what God calls evil. Yeshua is very clear that the rules of the game did not change just because the church inserted a piece of blank white paper between the Old and New Testaments to give us the impression that it did. We are and we will be until the universe and the earth are dissolved back to their elements and recreated, bound to the law of Moses, as Yeshua so plainly tells us. And Matthew 5, 17 through 20. But the Gentile-controlled church would have it since about the start of the 3rd century. And since the law was given to the wrong race of people, then as the right race, we can self-determine to divest ourselves of it and of its obligations. This fundamental faith issue was not left to us as a matter of opinion or biblical nuance. Obedience to God and to his son Yeshua and to the law of Moses is entirely wrapped up in and cannot be separated from salvation in Christ. Now it's time for what I think is a important preaching moment of application. In a podcast interview that I did recently, I explained to the show's host that trusting in any God is not the same as trusting in the biblically presented and defined God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And trusting for salvation in any Jesus is not the same as trusting in the historical and biblically defined Jesus. Today, too much, too much within the church, Jesus is a caricature, remolded, reshaped into a form that is more comfortable for Gentiles to accept. Even what Christ taught us through his word has been filtered and laundered and spun dry to allow it to be reinterpreted and practiced in countless ways to fit mankind's every desire. If such a thing as what I've just described can be right in God's eyes, then there is no such thing as an objective truth. And if there is no objective truth, then there can be no salvation from our sins 
Because there is no need for it, since there is no standard for us to be judged by. How can we be judged sinful if there's no standard for it? The law of Moses must continue to exist and remain in force, or we have no means by which to determine right from wrong, good from evil. When in verse 29, Yeshua says that those who aren't with him are against him, it needs to be understood on two levels. From the Pshat sense, it means that to be a believer is to be with Jesus by trusting him. And to deny him, to not trust him, is therefore to be against him. But on the Remez level, simply calling on his name and to personally identify with our own created image of him is by no means proof of being with him. See, Yeshua covered this exact scenario earlier in Matthew as it regarded neither pagans nor deniers, but rather as it is for those of us who claim to be his followers and devoted believers in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Well, then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. When we discussed this, as we discussed, or rather as we studied Matthew chapter 7, I had much to say about it that I'm not going to echo today. But I am going to say this much. Verses 21 through 23 in Matthew chapter 7 are for everyone who calls themselves a believer or a Christian or a messianic or a member of the ecclesia. Your claim, our claim upon Yeshua as Lord is not sufficient. It comes with a basic requirement to be accepted by the Father as sincere belief. We must do what who wants? What who wants? We must do what the Father in heaven wants, according to Yeshua. For us to say, but in Jesus' name I prophesied, what that meant in New Testament times was teaching the scriptures. In Yeshua's name I expelled demons from people. In Christ's name, I performed actual real miracles. What greater proof of my salvation in Messiah Jesus can there be than to do these things in his name? Christ says, the performance of such things is not the standard. The greater proof, what did he just say? Obedience to the Father. The Father says, 
that the law of Moses presents the standard of righteous behavior, behavior for humans, which is what he wants for all who worship him. The verse previous to what I just read you says this, going back to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20, so you will recognize them by their fruit. That is, the verses of Matthew 7, 21 through 23, explain how to sort out the true believers from the false ones. Perhaps deceived ones is the better way to think about it. And it is according to their fruit. What is fruit? Good fruit is righteous behavior that is God directed. It's not hard to figure out. Righteous behavior. What's that? Righteous behavior is that which meets the standard God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai a long time ago. Believing in Jesus in one sense or another and doing things in his name may be good. But it's not the proof of one's own true devotion to the true Jesus. Such declarations and claims don't substitute for righteous behavior, nor does Christ ever give us a new and different set of standards that ends the older ones. To be with Yeshua means to be in tune with who he actually is. Historically, and what he actually taught in its fullest context. Who he is historically, what he taught contextually, is Jewish in manner and thought. The moment we, we deny that, the moment we attempt to reconfigure this Jewish man into a Gentile mold, well, it's no longer him we're trusting in. Rather, it's some figment of our imaginations. And just as we refuse to recognize him as he truly is, he will refuse to recognize us as one of his, no matter how much we might plead and bargain. Further, if we refuse to fight against Satan, against God's definition of evil, alongside Yeshua as part of his army, then as far as he's concerned, he just said it, we're against him. Which makes us part of the army of the enemy. Again, no middle ground. Kind of severe, isn't it? You bet it is. But when the eternal battle of good versus evil is at stake, no price or requirement is too high. Verse 31 begins with, because of this. Other versions say, therefore I say to you. The point is that it is what Christ has just said in this scene that sets the stage for what he's about to say now. And what he's about to say are dire warnings 
And the first warning is this. People can be forgiven any sin and blasphemy. Now, probably Christ is directly referring to what the Pharisees have just falsely said about Yeshua getting his power from Baal-zebul to heal people, to expel demons. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. Now, notice the continuing divisions of power and authority. Yeshua speaks about between God, the Holy Spirit, and himself. He identifies the three entities. I am certain that you've heard any number of explanations about what this all means. So what exactly then is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I don't know that I can necessarily solve this challenging statement, but to approach it, it first helps to understand what the law of Moses has to say about sins and their consequences. In the law of Moses, sins are divided into two main categories, forgivable and not forgivable. Forgivable means that a properly done ritual sacrifice of atonement on the temple altar coupled with sincere regret and repentance pays the price that God demands from the sinner. Unforgivable means no sacrifice of atonement can pay, pay the price. It's simply beyond the sacrificial system to deal with it. Only the life of the sinner will do. Now, these unforgivable sins are also at times called high-handed. Other times, the two categories of sin are called intentional and unintentional. You can go back to TorahClass.com teachings on the Torah and get some extensive understanding of these designations. But in short, it does not mean on purpose versus accidental. Rather, intentional more means the most serious category of sins that are otherwise called high-handed and they are therefore not forgivable through an animal sacrifice. These are capital crimes, such as murder and adultery. Thus, despite, despite the Christian refrain that all sins are the same under God, a sin is a sin is a sin. Stealing a loaf of bread, well, that's no different than killing somebody, because they're both sins. This is refuted time after time in the Bible. Sins are indeed structured according to their seriousness and so therefore are the consequences for it. So Jesus' statement in Matthew 12, 31 about blasphemy rides upon this understanding. So just as a high-handed sin is always a direct, malicious, thought-out sin against God, then so is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit of God. One cannot do something against another human being, no matter how terrible it is, even murder, that amounts to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
So another aspect of Jesus' statement involves understanding the difference between sins and blasphemies. Generally speaking, sins are acts against our fellow man, while blasphemies are acts against God. So what Yeshua is saying is that God stands ready to forgive our sins, and yet there are still limits as to what he will forgive. Verses 31 and 32 work together in parallel. Because of this, I tell you that people will be forgiven any sin and blasphemy, but blaspheming the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. One can say something against the Son of Man and be forgiven. But whoever keeps on speaking against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, uh, neither in the Olam Hazeh, that's the present world, nor in the Olam Haba, the future world. See, here's the thing. Despite the fact that there are sins of human against human in which altar sacrifice will not atone for them. The coming of Yeshua and the kingdom of God has provided for a higher and better justice. There is no sin of human versus human that sincere trust in Christ together with sincere repentance cannot be forgiven. Now repentance does not mean sorrow or regret. It means positive change by actively turning away from those sins. In fact, says Christ, one can speak against the person of Yeshua and that of itself may be a form of blasphemy, but it is not necessarily a disqualifier for eternal life. However, there's a fine line in all this. And exactly where that line between forgivable sins and unforgivable blasphemies is, it can be awfully difficult to find. See, it's one thing to say some unkind things about Yeshua, even to disagree with him on some things, which might be rather foolish, but still doesn't condemn one to hell. But it's quite another to slander the work of God's Spirit to save. Now, I don't know when slander of Christ becomes slander of the Holy Spirit, but apparently it can. See, it's almost, and even maybe exactly this, that it's not so much that one rejects the person of the Son of Man in his humanness that is blasphemy, but rather it is that since the sign of our salvation in Christ is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who stays with us until our death, then it is the result of this rejection of Yeshua in his divinity that necessarily blocks the work of the Holy Spirit to save. And so while some degree of saying words against Yeshua can be forgiven, at some point they exceed the limits and it rises to the category of the unforgivable crime against God of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit from which there is only one result. 
Now, while this is probably still a somewhat hazy definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, see, from a practical sense, I am confident to say this. Why get close to that line at all? You know, I'm going to tell you a story. Years ago, Becky and I were in Alaska. And our dear friend, a really crazy bush pilot, flew us up to a glacier that was 10,000 feet in altitude, and we landed on it. And he said, now, I want you to know something. He said, right over there is a crevasse. He said, you can just kind of barely see it from the snow line. He said, now, some of you are going to be tempted to want to walk over and see it. Don't do it. You know what I mean? And boy, that was tempting. Oh, how, how do you not? <laughs> but I guess that's the point. Why tempt God to classify you as a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit? with a consequence of eternal damnation when it just doesn't have to be that way. Why go near that crevasse? And really, I think this is Yeshua's intent and meaning. See, this is not some issue of the finer points of the law that he has brought up. This is not about somebody Oh, sincerely wanting and valuing salvation, but you know, just missed it by a hair's breadth. That's not what this is about. This is about blatant denial of God's will and his plan to redeem and to save through his son that becomes this overwhelming, unquestionable allegiance to the opposition of the kingdom of heaven. And what's the opposition to the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of Satan. Just as no one is accidentally saved, no one accidentally loses the opportunity for it. And no one accidentally loses their salvation once received. Therefore, this is not, there's just not a question in my mind that, for instance, a blatant and sincere atheist is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So, his or her eternal future of darkness and torment is set in stone, barring some amazing and highly unlikely change of heart. Well, verse 33. This represents another metaphor using agricultural terms. This makes sense because Jewish culture was primarily an agricultural society. So the people listening would easily grasp Yeshua's meaning. As verse 34 shows, the target of his ire continues to be these Pharisees. And equally of little doubt is that in the earlier verses about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it too was meant as a direct shot at the Pharisees. So using indisputable logic, 
that almost any member of Jewish society would understand, Christ says that obviously good fruit comes from a good tree. But if that tree becomes bad, well, then its fruit's all gonna, also going to become bad. See, this is an inescapable dichotomy, both of the physical and the spiritual world. Because the creator of the spiritual is the same as the creator of the physical. Thus, the principles are the same for both realms. Then the meek and gentle Yeshua points to the Pharisees in the crowd and he says, You snakes! Oh man, that wasn't exactly charitable or kind or subtle, was it? See, Yeshua's pattern is that he makes many allowances for the ordinary folks. A man, he has no patience with the Jewish religious leadership because it is they that are supposed to know and teach the scriptural truth to the common folks. But instead, it is they who lead people away from the truth by putting more stock in their long-held customs and traditions and vying for personal power than in teaching and trusting God's word. Okay. Pastors, rabbis, ministers, lend me your ear. I hope you, I hope we all heard this. See, it's so very easy to get tied to denominational or organizational doctrines, some of which, as it turns out, don't really square with an intellectually honest and in-context reading of the Bible. Now, we, of course, want to protect our jobs. So in turn, we protect the doctrines. Now, sometimes it is that we've so wed ourselves to believing certain interpretations and have sold it to others for so long, we can't bring ourselves to admit that maybe we were wrong. Perhaps it's fear that our congregation will think that if we admit we were wrong about some things, then if we change what, what we believe, why would they believe anything we say? See, I can tell you from experience that an occasional admission that we don't know everything, <laughs> that over time God can teach even the oldest of dogs new tricks about his word, if we're open to it, kind of tends to make us more human and authentic and accessible to our congregation. They learn that we remain teachable. And we continue in our pursuit of truth. And we would rather accept the consequences of admitting previous errors than covering it up so that we don't risk our reputation as fountains of biblical knowledge. But to those denominational pastors who might be listening, I realize and I sympathize that your situation is definitely harder. You may be, you probably are, required to faithfully adhere to a certain set of doctrines or else you could be let go. Perhaps have your ordination revoked. 
And I can only offer this comfort to you. Our devotion to God and to his truth must always be higher than our devotion to customs and traditions and to the rules of human institutions. When we make our devotion to God as our highest aspiration by doing what is right and not what is safer and easier, the rewards for it, even if postponed until we enter our rest, are going to far outdo anything we could receive from an earthly human religious institution. But equally, I don't ever want any of us to stand before God on Judgment Day and hear from Him that we knew the truth, but we withheld it from those who needed it and trusted us to provide it because we were afraid we might look bad. We'll continue in Matthew chapter 12 next week.